Hi, before you get to the reason why you're here, we would just like to thank our headline sponsors, Pitch Publishing, for helping to make this podcast possible. They are an independent UK sports publisher, purveyors of excellent football books, amongst other brilliant sports titles. Please do take the time to support our sponsor by visiting their website, pitchpublishing.co.uk and sign up for the brilliant monthly newsletter. You'll receive details straight to your inbox of all Pitch's new releases each month and free sample chapters of most books so you can try before you buy. It's really easy to sign up and they don't bombard you with spam. Log on to the website and click the newsletter link at the top of the website. Thank you and on to the podcast. And now, final score. Hello, I'm Stuart Horsfield, and this is the What's the Score podcast with the back pages. Every episode, I will be talking with a guest who is in love with the beautiful game. I will be asking them for their three favourite football books, asking them to pick their three favourite songs from a list of 10 categories. Finally, each guest will be given a score draw question, drawn randomly live on air. This is 45 minutes of football, music, and books. Hello and welcome to another episode of What's the Score? And I'm delighted to announce that uh, this week's guest essentially is the soundtrack to my childhood. Um, It is a man who started working as a journalist in 1959, covered eight decades of sport, 10 World Cups, six Olympic Games, Commonwealth Games, Asian Games, 20 Open Golf Championships. Not only that, the man has interviewed Nelson Mandela, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Pele has visited over 86 countries, um, but arguably for me and for those who know me, the most important thing that he's ever done in his life um, is commentate on the Brazil versus Italy game in the 1982 World Cup. Um, it is my absolute pleasure to introduce Mr. John Helm. John, welcome to the podcast. Morning, Stuart. I love all that research. You've been up all night. <laughs> well, luckily, I have a friend. I have this really good friend who um, happened to know quite a bit about you. Um, so much to get into, so much to chat about. Obviously, you know, we've got your book choices, we've got your song choices, we have your own Spotify playlist for people to listen to afterwards if they want to get a bit more to know you um, through, through your choice of music. Um, but, but first of all, um, obviously, I mean, where do we start with your career? Football and your relationship with football? I know it's a big question, but, but how do you see your relationship with the beautiful game? Well, the funny thing is my nickname as a boy was Stan. <clears throat> uh, I was born in 1942. And my first footballing memory really is of the 1953 FA Cup final, the Stanley Matthews final, where Blackpool beat Bolton Wanderers 4-3. And I was mesmerized by this wizard of the dribble, as they call Stanley Matthews. So I used to dribble a tennis ball to school. There are still lads around who thought I was absolutely crazy. And I think I used to commentate, according to my first teacher, Mrs. Dunwall, I used to commentate in the the playground. So I I grew up in love with the sport. I always wanted to be a footballer. Never could, because I've worn spectacles since the age of eight. There aren't too many England (laughs) centre forwards wearing glasses. Uh, So I was absolutely besotted by the sport and cricket, by the way, as well. I'm still involved with Bailden Cricket Club. I've been the president for 40 years. Um, so I had a great affinity with sport and my father took me to watch Bradford City uh, and I saw them draw one all with York City. I've still got the names of all the players. 
But I, then I went to watch Rough Park Avenue. They beat Accrington Stanley 4-0. In the same week, I went to watch Yorkshire play Australia at Park Avenue in the days of Frank Truman and Ray Lindwall. And I thought, what a wonderful place this is. I want to live here at Park Avenue. And that really fostered my, my relationship with the, the great game and all sport, really. It, it's funny, I, I actually, again, I'm sort of digressing a little bit already. Um, obviously, you, you, know, you contributed massively um, to the book that I wrote, and this isn't about that. But I remember I actually managed to finally track you down through the, through, it was through the cricket club that I, actually managed, that I actually managed to find you. I think it was a friend of a friend of a contact of a friend who said that you could be found at the cricket club. And it, and it was a, a sort of a, a generic email request that you could put into the cricket club. Um, and I think I just sent out a tentative message asking if you were there and whether or not you'd be interested. Well, there you are, you see. I was a better cricketer than a footballer, actually, because you do get cricketers wearing glasses. Uh, Jeffrey Boycott did, David Steele did. So I, wasn't, I played in the Bradford League. I was decent. Uh, not quite good enough for, to be a county cricketer. Um, but I've just loved all sport and I'm still a member of Baleden Golf Club. Uh, I, I live in Baleden in West Yorkshire uh, and my subscription is £15 a year as a life member. So uh, you wow. know, I can't complain, can I? And then I got to, to love rugby league as well. And then I, I've actually covered uh, something like 30 sports, you know, 30 different sports. So I'm just a sports nut, I suppose, really. It, it's funny, you, I mean, like I say, you're right. I mean, obviously, Martin. A lot of this is to do with football, and you know we will we will get more into the football. But you're right, your your voice, and this is a thing with commentators, and it's even a thing right now as we're chatting. It's so surreal to hear the voice that you associate with your childhood, that you associate with the television. To hear that talking back to you in generic conversation is is so strange. But yet you're right. There are so many sports that your voice that I can attribute your voice to. Certainly, you know, as a kid growing up. In terms of commentary, then how did you? Obviously, you said you were never going to make it as a footballer due to the due to the glasses. So, when obviously you went into journalism, when did you get an idea for the feel of of commentary? I think really it wasn't until I went to work at Radio Leeds because I worked on uh, a weekly newspaper for seven years covering football. My first ever match as a football reporter um, was between the Salts of Saltaire, the local team in the Yorkshire League, and Norton Woodseats. And I can still remember the Salts team, and that's how daft I am. Um, but really, and then I had four years on the Yorkshire Post, and I was approached there to become sports editor Radio Leeds by the BBC. I couldn't believe that this little lad, John Helm from Baildon, was being approached by the BBC to go as sports editor to Radio Leeds. And obviously I knew that that would incorporate commentary. And uh, so I started commentating on Leeds United matches. I had, funnily enough, while I was at the York Evening Post, done one rugby league game, Dewsbury against Bradford Northern, and was really nervous about doing it. Uh, but then, obviously, the full-time opportunity was far too good uh, to turn down. And so I joined Radio Leeds in 1970, on the very day that Leeds played Chelsea in the FA Cup final at Wembley, famous 2-2 draw. Uh, I didn't, wasn't there because I hadn't actually joined at that point. But from that moment on, I became a regular commentator and I was really lucky. I mean, I was in tandem with the best team in Europe, probably Leeds United. You know, Sprake, Reaney, Cooper, Bremner, Charlton, Hunter, Lauren McClark, Jones, Charles Gray, not forgetting Maidley. And so I was doing all their matches at home and abroad, going into Europe. And that really uh, got me going. It got me going because I got noticed down in London by the BBC who sent me to New Zealand, to the Commonwealth Games to represent all 20 local radio stations and I was offered a, a full-time post in London at the BBC there. 
That's incredible. I mean, I, mean it, I, I suppose sometimes, like you say, almost, you know, luck, I guess, sometimes plays a part. But in what would essentially be, as you said, not, not an apprenticeship as we know it, but your apprenticeship in football commentary with that great Don Revy side, Leeds United. Do you, do you think you benefited or do you think you learnt quicker because of the, the side that you were associated with and the magnitude of the games? Did it, you know, did it focus attention more? Yes, I mean, without question. I mean, I got uh, my career advanced on the back of Leeds United. Don Reedy was absolutely fantastic with me. He gave me total access. I started writing Billy Bremner's column in uh, Shoot magazine. Uh, I was also writing for, the, for the, them as well. And Soccer Star, the, you, you're far too young to remember a magazine called Soccer Star. Um, <laughs> so I was totally involved in football. And when you work at a local radio station, you do put the hours in. And I used to do a Friday evening programme. I was in there all, on air all day Saturday, a Sunday programme as well. I hardly knew the wife over that time of, of, of my life. Um, so you were totally involved in, in a great sport and with a great team and because it was Leeds United and because they were all so famous every time there was a story the network would ring me up and say oh can you go and get an interview with Don Reilly can you go and get an interview with Peter Lorimer and of course I could and I've got I've still got all the phone numbers of all the players from that era as well and then it just blossomed I suppose uh, because when I went to London, I became the network football producer, actually, rather than commentator or presenter. And well, I did present. I used to present what is now Sport on uh, five, 5 Live, and it was Sport on 2 in those days. Um, but because of that, I started going into Europe with the teams like Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur and Arsenal, and uh, just amazing days, really. And my contact book, my A to Z, was absolutely full of famous names, I'll say it myself. That's incredible. Um, again, just going off script, I'm, this is one of those where I, I know it's 45 minutes and I have to restrict myself. Your, I guess your take then, because I always try and make the most of conversations with people like yourself, your take on Brian Clough um, and Leeds United. Obviously, you, you were there in terms of you lived through that Don Revy side, you know, and then the arrival of Clough. Just, just your take on whether he was the right choice whether he went about it the wrong way, you know, how did you see those? Well, yeah, I think I can encapsulate my answer in about 30 seconds. One, he was the wrong choice because he'd upset all those Leeds United players by criticising them at a Yorkshire television dinner, full enough, only a few weeks before. Two, he didn't bring Peter Taylor with him. He'd have had a chance if he'd brought his regular number two, Peter Taylor, with him. Three, he obviously fell out with a lot of the players, um, although they still thought he would have been a good manager. And if you ask me, would he have made a good England manager? My answer would have been no, because much of I quite like Cluffy in a funny way. He was very abrasive, and you always knew you were going to get a fantastic interview with him. But he would have rubbed so many people up the FA up the wrong way that it could never have worked. Yeah, it, it's a lot of people talk about Clough and, and what could have been, but I guess. From, from a fan's perspective, you just see European Cups, league titles, and you assume he, he would have been really good and because he was different. But like you said, the people who, know, who knew him, like yourself, could probably see the fallibility and the, and the reasons as to why he would never have made it as an England manager. Um, okay, so coming to your first book then. Um, so you've, you've gone with the football yearbook. Um, I, I'm, am I wrong to suggest you have a, a number of these? 
<laughs> I've got them from the very first edition. My library is absolutely chock-a-block of, of books, but particularly what used to be the Rothmans Football Yearbook, and then it became the Sky Sports Football yeah. Yearbook. It is our absolute Bible as a commentator. If you need to know anything about any individual player going back forever, you know, I can find out something about Billy Meredith from 1922 if I want. Uh, you just cannot go without it. It's a big tome, obviously. It takes up a lot of space. But every year, I can't wait for, for it to be uh, the new edition to come out. And yeah, I've got every single one going right back to the very first edition. Essential for any commentator. Oh, that was that was just about to be my next question. I was just about to say, is that the sort of the book that all all commentators go to? Yes. Well, I mean, we've now got things like Wikipedia and Google search and all, all manner of that means of getting information. Uh, but when I first started as a commentator, there was none of that. I mean, if you, if you bear it in mind, I mean, the internet has changed absolutely everything. But that book has virtually been there forever throughout my broadcasting career. And so it's the one book I just could not do without. And all commentators worth their salt will have that book every year. It's the first thing you need because you go into a match needing a lot of information. People say, how long does it take you to research for a game? It usually takes me five or six hours per match. And sometimes when I do FIFA tournaments, I'm doing two matches a day. <clears throat> so you can imagine that's 10 or 12 hours a day. I'm just sitting in a hotel room somewhere preparing. And the first thing you do is go to the football yearbook and look up the, all the players who are likely to be playing. You might have to research 30 players, 36 players for any one particular game. It, I, okay, so I, I am going to ask you about commentating on major tournaments and the difference. And I, but I also want to chat with you briefly about that period of European Cup success and the English clubs had from sort of 77 to 84. But before we go on to that, we'll, we'll, go, to your first, we'll go to your first song choice. Um, and you went with, obviously, you know, I send out a list of 10 and you, you get to pick any three that you want. And your first one you went with is the song you most associate with football. Um, you're the first person to pick that category, actually. Um, and your choice is you'll, you'll Never Walk Alone by Jerry and the Pacemakers. Is it, is it the ultimate football song? Uh, in many ways, yes. <clears throat> the reason for choosing that one, I was standing on the cop in 1968 when Leeds United won the title. And Don Revie ordered all the Leeds United players to go to the cop. And they all went, Ooh, are, you, are you sure that's a good idea? <laughs> and the Liverpool fans burst out in United song, champions, champions, to the opposition. And I thought that was sensational. And every time I've been to Liverpool, to Anfield, the hair stand up on the back of your neck when you hear you'll never walk alone. And then the third reason, as you know, and I think you'll probably ask me about it later, the Bradford City Fire, of course, I was unlucky enough to be the commentator, but when they reopened the stadium, Jerry Marsden came to sing You'll Never Walk Alone, and it had the same effect on me. That's fantastic. What, yeah, what a great rationale for choice. Um, this, is, this is Jerry and the Pacemakers <coughs> with You'll Never Walk Alone.
Um, it, it is it's a, it is a beautiful song, with, and it, it, right, it has so many connotations. And again, if you think back to um, Hillsborough as well, and you think back, you know, the, it, it's sort of ingrained almost with football, with Liverpool, with the cop, but also as a symbol of, like you said, with Bradford Fire, and it is something I do want to talk about. You know, it's a song that inspires hope and, and, and those, sort, you know, those sorts of emotions as well. It's, it's almost more, it, to me, it transcends football. You'll never walk alone. Um, so going back to the going back to the your career then, um, and sort of moving into post the post on Riviera, and you talk about going into Europe, and you know you, sat, you touched on um, Clough and Peter Taylor. Those those sort of eight years between seventy seven and, and eighty four, where English clubs dominated the European Cup. You know, again, you know, it, you know, you talk about being in the right place at the right time. I, I, you know, I guess for an up and coming football commentator, those nights, you know, because you you know, it was the five rounds, you know, in the final. So, you know, if, if English clubs had not done very well and it was a first or second round exit, and as the European Cup was back then, it was one representative plus the holders in, in England's case. Um, you know, it could, that, that sort of journey could have been over quite quickly from an English club perspective. But you, following those English clubs, you must have had some incredible evenings. Oh, absolutely. Funnily, um, <clears throat> you've just mentioned Brian Clough, and of course I was at, both finals, which they won, you know, they, they beat uh, uh, Malmo uh, and of course uh, they beat Hamburg. Kevin Keegan inspired Hamburg and that was another strange connection. Kevin became a very good friend of mine. He's a lovely, lovely man, he's Kevin Keegan. And he was so identifiable at that time with Europe, with England. <clears throat> and I'll never forget him doing an interview with me after the England fans had rioted at the 1980 Euros when they were playing uh, Belgium. and. Uh, Kevin epitomised that time as well. But yeah, Nottingham Forest, I was at the Leeds United, lost to Bayern Munich, of course, uh, in Paris. Uh, Liverpool became synonymous. I really felt sorry for Everton as well, because when they finished top, they were denied the opportunity of playing in the European Cup. And because I was the network football producer, I used to go to every round uh, of the competition and the Cup Winners' Cup and the UEFA Cup as well. I, I sort of missed the Cup Winners' Cup again. Just one team from each country allowed through. But our teams generally did pretty well in it. Uh, I got identified with Ipswich Town when they got to a final as well. And nearly every year, there seemed to be an English representative. Uh, Tottenham Hotspur played Wolverhampton Wanderers, you know. These were absolutely great times for, for English clubs. Unforgettable, but slightly uneasy because whenever an English team was involved, we did have trouble with the fans. There's, there's no getting away from that. And I was far more comfortable often if I was doing, excuse me, Real Madrid against AC Milan than I was sometimes if it was an English club involved because there was always that worry that it's going to spark off here and you're going to be talking about other than just the football. Yeah, we said, you know, English clubs, I think it's fair to say, dominated those late 70s, early 80s. And, you know, I want to get into World Cup commentary with you, but if, if we touch on the 82 World Cup, England's performance, um, in the 82 World Cup was, you know, no defeats, one goal conceded, and, and yet they exited. And yet, you know, in, on the club scene, they were very much, um, you know, the premier country in terms of European success, as you mentioned there in, in all three competitions. Why, why do you think that never translated across into that 82 World Cup? Um, possibly down to management, possibly down to a lack of uh, inspiration, 
uh, possibly underestimating some of the other countries in the world as well. As you say, unbeaten, so they didn't do that badly. Uh, but, you know, Brazil were just in a, a different world to me, to, to any other team that was competing there. Argentina were tough. You know, they'd won in 1978, which was my first World Cup. You know, the Passarellas and the Kempers and people like that. They're some great players as well. Italy always formidable, Germany always formidable as well. And I don't think that we were quite there when it came to that. We weren't quite as good as any of those nations. And that was just reflected in, in performance ultimately when we exited the, the, the tournament. Um, is it looking at, we are definitely coming back to the 82 World Cup because it's obviously by far my favourite tournament and for me still the greatest World Cup tournament that's been played. But if 78 being your first one, obviously it's Argentina. Um, there's the military junta. You know, people are aware of the dictatorship that was going on in Argentina. And obviously it's your first World Cup tournament. Um, I guess there's nothing like being thrown in at the deep end. No, the strange thing is, you know, that it's so anomalous when you think about it now. I also cover the draws. So I was out there in Buenos Aires uh, six months before the tournament to cover the draw. I think there were three journalists there, or four maybe. <laughs> so the interest was just not there in those days. It was extraordinary when you think about it. I was there with Brian Butler, a great BBC football correspondent, to cover the draw. Uh, in Russia, uh, in 2018, I think there were something like 4,000 broadcasters present. At the, at the, that's how it's exploded. It was the same when I did the Open Golf Championship, by the way. The first one was Tom Watson got a thousand pounds nowadays to get a million for winning it. So that's just a reflection on how things have changed so dramatically. I will never ever forget Argentina and the military junta, as you said, and the Falklands War was, you know, on the lips of everybody as well. Um, but football was not quite what it is today. I mean, it, it, it's exploded in terms of interest worldwide. You know, you have 218 countries, I think it is now, competing under the banner of FIFA. In those days, it was nothing like as intense. Uh, and so, you know, that, there has been a massive, throughout my time in football, a massive shift in momentum. This, I'm, I'm not looking for, I'm certainly not looking for controversial comment. You, you are you know, clearly an incredibly educated man and certainly with regards to football to me you just know everything um with regards to the argentina victory in 1978 did, did the right team win the tournament oh, yes they did because uh, they they got through on the back of the passion of the fans there Holland were a very, very good team as well. Yeah, I guess what you're hinting at here, there were one or two debatable decisions, one or two uh, strange results like beating Peru by six goals when they had to do. Uh, but it, they did get through on a, a wave of euphoria, a South American euphoria. The Dutch might well have won that tournament. They were very, very good. But on the day, Argentina with Luque and Kempis and Passarella and Filio, they had some great players, you know. People mm. should houseman. Yeah. People should not forget that. You know, so okay, they had a very easy passage. And you know, you, you, you might might look back at various World Cups and look at one or two mysterious results. I, I've seen incidents in World Cups and thought that's not quite right. Um, but Argentina, yeah, they deserve to win it in, in my view. And, and to be fair, that, that, is, that was more to the point of what I was getting at. Obviously, you know, you're, you're there, you're in the tournament environment. You see things that we never see on the television screens. 
and so your perspective your your opinion is of far more value to like you say the hearsay that is written about or suspicious results that are viewed thousands of miles back home um with the peru game did you did you ever get a sense of you know as a journalist was there ever a sense of malice like you mentioned there's only four journalists out there for the draw you know as a journalist did you ever feel that there were not that you were being watched but that you were being observed or was it very much free to free to come and go Oh no, I think uh, it's fair enough to say about being observed, but I'll never ever forget there was an advert on television in Buenos Aires asking local people, asking Argentine people to be friendly to foreigners. Uh, and they were, they were very, very friendly. But I, I'd been away with Leeds United, don't forget, to some countries behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, Hungary, I'll never ever forget. You know, there was a chap standing behind a pillar in the hotel watching absolutely everybody, watching every movement. Um, and one or two dodgy results. I will never ever forget Leeds United being beaten by AC Milan in the Cup Winners' Cup final, which was totally rigged. I mean, there's no question about that. The referee was banned for life afterwards. He denied Leeds about three penalties in that game that they definitely <laughs> should have had. There's no question about it. They, they were unlucky in the Bayern Munich final as well because the, the referee there disallowed a goal with a Peter Lorimer shot because Billy Bremer was offside about 40 yards away. Uh, there were some very, very debatable results, which had been, and it wasn't just Leeds United, by the way. Paul Hart always insists that Nottingham Forest uh, were beaten by Anderlecht illegally. Um, so without me even commenting on that, it did used to happen. And you did get a feeling as a journalist, sometimes when you're abroad, as I say, especially behind the Iron Curtain, uh, of, 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 of worry because you knew you were being watched every step of the way. Uh, and in that South American tournament, I will never forget when I was out there for the draw, a young boy was shot uh, for trying to get into a football match without paying. And there were all sorts of horrible stories uh, with the military junctures. So, yeah, there, were, there was a, an uneasy feeling at that time. This is, this is all and everything I hoped it would be and more. Um, I want to come to your next book choice because I think it probably tells me a little bit about the type of players and certainly when you mentioned Stanley Matthews at the intro I, I, I think I can get a feel for the type of footballers that that appeal to you um your second book is The King uh, the Dennis Law autobiography is that the quality of book or the quality of player quality of person uh, and I'm so sad at the moment that Dennis seems to be one of the latest victims of uh, dementia which he was very brave to talk about recently. But Dennis was my co-commentator in 1982 at those World Cup finals and also in 1986 and 1990 and 1994, uh, along with Billy McNeil, who was, sadly we lost recently as well, another great man. But Dennis was fun. He was, a, he was a fantastic footballer. He used to hang in the air, scored a load of goals, started at Huddersfield Town when he'd come down from Aberdeen. So his story, I mean, when he arrived in England, he was a pimply-faced, bespectacled, can you believe, young man, <laughs> and there was nothing to him. And Bill Shankly was his manager at Huddersfield, who took one look at him and said, my God, you know, you need beefing up, boy. Um, but Dennis became a personal friend, and I used to love to have dinner with Dennis of an evening, because uh, he, he didn't like it to be too peaceful. He wanted a, a nice little row with somebody, or an argument, a, a, a jovial one, you know. And he was fantastically entertaining. His, uh, his interests in the world were uh, distances between different planets, which is extraordinary, Jupiter and Venus and Mars. And his other one, he used to get you going on capitals of the world. Uh, when he was on a long flight, 
He used to read books. He didn't play cards and things like that on trips. Uh, and he could name every capital of every country in the world. And he used to get you on the easy ones. Australia, Canberra, you know, Paris in France or whatever. And then he'd go Greenland. <laughs> and there were blank looks on everybody's faces. Nobody ever knew the capital of Greenland. For the record, it was Godfarb at that time. And Dennis was just wonderful entertainment and great fun to be around. It's, I, I think what we'll do is we'll, I'll come, I'll come to your next song category, and then we'll jump into the eighty-two, um, the eighty-two World Cup. Like you say, you're, you're a co-commentator, and for me, the, the greatest football topic in the world, with the greatest football team in the world, with the greatest football team in the world. Um, but your, your second song, uh, and I love this choice. Um, you went with your favourite movie song or score, and, and you've gone with the James Bond theme. Um, very apt, obviously, with the new Bond, with the new Bond film out now, but an iconic piece of music. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, my wife is pestering me at the moment again <laughs> to go to see the, the latest James Bond film. But as a lad growing up, I mean, it was Sean Connery, I suppose, then it was Roger Moore. And you thought, God, I wish I was him. <laughs> I wish I could be like that man. <laughs> but the music set the tone, didn't it? You know, there are certain signature tunes like, uh, I don't know, Match of the Day or Test Match Cricket or whatever. But as soon as you hear a James Bond theme, you know you're in for a couple of enthralling hours, a lot of adventure. Uh, and, you know, you just can't wait for it. You know, it, it sets the tone. The, the, the theme sets the tone for great movies. Brilliant. I'll I'll leave it at that. This is and you're right. We're about to we're about to head on an adventure. Uh, this is the classic theme tune to James Bond. So, so you do need to you do need to go see it then, I guess. <laughs> You've been pestered to to go and see the latest film. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yes, um, it's on the agenda. I go back to India in about three weeks to do the Indian Football League again. So I'm under orders between <laughs> now and then to do two things, and that is to take her to see James Bond and also a war museum in Accrington. Couldn't be much <laughs> different in that. Couldn't wow, <laughs> no, you're right. Um, so okay, so the. the so we, we need to come to the 82 World Cup, like I say, I, my favourite tournament. I gather you liked it. I gather yeah. you enjoyed it. Oh, it is my... Socrates! My, yeah, and, well, this is it. And, you know, the 82 World Cup, my entire relationship with football is based around that tournament and, and that Brazil side. Obviously, I spoke to you with regards to writing the book and you were, again, so kind with your time and your insight and stuff. But, uh, what was I saying? How is, what's it like, obviously like I said to you before, we, we watch the game on television, so we see what the pictures want you to see. As a commentator live at the stadium, you get to see everything. Um, and what was it like commentating on that Brazil side? It was probably the highlight of my footballing life. 
because uh, obviously I'd done my research and I knew about the great players, Zico, Socrates, Falcao, Eder, and still those names roll off the tongue and they're magical to me. Then the build-up to the game, you were excited, you know, and I, I was so lucky. Uh, the reason I got every Brazil game was I was working for ITV, as you know, in those days, and it was ITV and BBC both there, so we were up against one another. So I was up against John Watson or Barry Davis, whoever it might be. Uh, when the draw was made, I was uh, assigned Scotland. And of course, Scotland were in the same group, along with Russia and New Zealand. Uh, so I did Brazil's first game, which they won 2-1 against Russia, uh, which was fantastic. Uh, I had a lot of travelling because we were based down near Gibraltar. And so some of the matches were played in Seville and some of the matches were played in Malaga. Uh, so there was a lot of travelling involved. Um, and then once I'd seen them play Russia, I thought, wow, this is some team, even though they struggled to beat them at times. And then, of course, came the 4-1 against Scotland when David Neary scored that goal for the Scots. And Brazil turned in some of the most sumptuous football I'd ever seen, by which time I was now falling in love with them. Um, which is not a great thing to do as a commentator, but you have to do because they were just something different, something I've never seen before. They were better than any team I'd ever seen before. Exciting. These were enthralling footballing days. Uh, and of course, there's just something about the name Brazil and all the memories of Pele and Didi and Bavar and oh, 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 Carlos Alberto. So the whole world loved the Brazilians. And here I was knowing I was going to do every one of their games. Then, of course, they beat New Zealand, which wasn't a contest, and I ended up in interviewing Pele during the course of that game. Um, so there were three. It was a different format in those days, through to the next phase, and who should they get for Argentina and Italy? Wow, I'm in heaven here. Because the, the build-up to these matches, you just knew that you were going to be entertained royally. You, you knew you were going to be watching the best players on the planet. They beat Argentina, Maradona got himself sent off, and then came that fateful day against Italy. And in a way, unprofessional of me, because I desperately wanted them to win. They succumbed to the Paolo Rossi hat-trick. And I could honestly have wept when they went out of the competition, because I wanted to see them every day. I wanted to see their fans every day. They were beautiful fans as well. The sun was shining. Really, it was heaven. That's a simple way of putting it. it was in, I was in heaven watching Brazil play in that World Cup in '82. You see, and this is why this is why I wanted to have you as a guest on this podcast. You see, that's exactly the reason. Um, we we'll come back to the we'll come back to the World Cup again in a second. Um, because just before we came, just before we started recording, we chatted about a certain goal in 1986, and it's probably not the goal that most people think we're going to chat about. Um, but before we come to that, um, your your final book choice, and there was a little caveat that came with this when you sent me it about Christmas presents. Um, and it's the it's the soccer gift book by Charles Buchan. Um, if you just want to just a bit more detail about that. Well, as I said uh, at the onset here, uh, I grew up in in love with football. I think my parents knew that obviously. A little boy who dribbles a tennis ball to school and talks about nothing but Rafa Park Avenue is obviously mad on football. And it was amazing. I always used to get poorly about two days before Christmas because I knew what was in the stocking, besides the traditional. Uh, chocolate and, and an orange which is what we used to get in those days and so uh, there was a footballer called Charlie Buchan who played in oh my goodness gracious me the 30s and 40s or whatever and he became a journalist and he started this soccer gift book 
Charlie Book and Suffolk Soccer Gift Book, and it was absolutely enthralling to me. It was like a 200 pages packed with pictures and stories of all the great footballers at that time. Uh, I won't bore you with the names, which won't mean anything to anybody nowadays, but I can still recite just about the, the names of the teams of every uh, club in the country. And um, so I used to get this at Christmas, and I used to feign illness to get it early. And my parents, I think, knew what was going on, but I couldn't wait to get Charlie Buchan's soccer football yearbook. It was fantastic. <laughs> what, what a great story and an even better rationale um, for selecting it. Um, going back to the World Cup, my second favourite World Cup is the 1986 World Cup, but I guess, you're a, as you just talked about as well, you're a product of your childhood. And those two World Cups, I was at my peak for football and interest and, and being receptive to the game. Um, and, I mean, that to me is a tournament that probably had some of the best goals um, in the best goals ever scored at a World Cup. You know, you could put together a top 20 goals ever scored in the World Cup and they could all come from that tournament. Um, but the Manuel Negrete um, goal, the scissor kick, um, you, again, it's your voice that I associate with, with that goal. It, how do you... When you see something like that, when you see something so sublime and so perfect, how do the words go from brain to mouth so quickly to capture that moment? Well, it's purely instinctive. It wasn't for a little boy in Scarborough, by the way. Uh, it was because I was doing my job. And I've always said about commentary, it has to be spontaneous. I hate it when I hear a commentator using something that I know he's had in his mind before the game even kicked off. You have to be spontaneous. When Negretti scored, I mean, he defied gravity almost. You know, he was in midair when he hooked the ball into the Bulgarian net. And so yeah, you just react as you see it at the time. It was the same with you know, Falcao's goal, uh, which he scored in the World Cup. A wonderful image. You know, it's, it's an image that's in your mind. So I think you hope you get it right each time, but it has to come right out the top of your head. It has to be purely spontaneous otherwise it's not right it's I, I want to touch on something i don't mean to take the mood down and it's certainly not designed to sensationalize this you know this podcast in any way but you know you mentioned it quite early on and you know and that's the bradford fire and i suppose it, it's a similar question i remember i remember it um 11th of may 1985 i remember coming home um shopping with my mom and put the television on and it was on and, and, and it was on the pictures were the pictures were playing um, on the screen. How I mean, obviously you go from commentating to almost being a public information service. Almost, um, I, I, I don't know how to ask the question, but how do you, you know, you think of Hillsbury, you think of High you think of the Bradford Fire. How how do you switch from what was a, you know, I suppose a game of joy. It was the third division champions. They'd received the trophy to then having to almost give information about what you're seeing. I can't imagine how you go through that and keep talking and keep engaging. Right. Well, I think it can help you out here, Stuart. I was very grateful for the fact that I had seven years on a weekly newspaper, four years on a daily newspaper, <clears throat> local radio and national radio training at that moment. Uh, you aren't particularly conscious, in a way, of the words that you're saying. Again, I, I refer to spontaneity. 
So I had to react. But what I was aware of was trying not to over-dramatise what were obviously horrific and very dramatic pictures. So the fewer words I used, the better I thought it would be. But obviously I had to try and keep it going. Uh, at the time, I was actually being stoned by some supporters uh, down below who were wanting us to switch our cameras off. It was absolutely right, by the way, that we kept them on because those pictures are still used to this day in training the, the, the different services, the emergency services. So uh, the director is important as well. So the director on that day was called Peter Jones and he was in my ear saying, just keep going, keep going uh, and we'll tell you when you can stop. So I knew I had to describe what I was witnessing in front of me, which was awful. And bear in mind, I knew a lot of the people because I'm a Bradford boy. Um, but again, just to say that I didn't know at that time the, the gravity. I didn't know 56 people had died. The first inclination I had was when two small boys scrambled up. It was on a, a little hillock where we were in almost like a garden shed opposite the main stand. And they said there are two dead down there. And that sent a shiver through me. It really did. Uh, but again, I was conscious of the fact that, yes, you could see the pall of smoke, which was rising hundreds of feet into the air. You could see the people on the pitch who would not normally have been there. I could see a couple of players coming, mingling amongst them. And you could see the emergency services, the police and the ambulance in there as well. So I was just conscious of using words sparingly, not trying to over-dramatise because the pictures were telling the story. And that, I've always said about broadcasting, um, the great commentator Richie Benno also said the same thing. If you can't add to the picture with meaningful words, don't say anything. And so that was what I was trying to do. Obviously, I had to, to use some words. I had to say what was happening uh, but without trying to interpret too much. As it turned out, of course, 56 people lost their lives on that day. A day none of us will ever forget, but I like to think that Yorkshire Television handled it in as professional a manner as possible. There's a lot, there's a lot that I can't comprehend about your career, um, you know, especially the massive highs, but, but certainly, you know, the Bradford fire and how, like you, as you so eloquently put there, almost the fewer words, the better, yet while still retaining the dignity and, and the levels of information that are required whilst a producer's in your ear, whilst you, I suppose the crowd are reacting around you and everything's unfolding, I, I can't begin to imagine how, how, you, go about, how you go about doing that. Do, um, did you ever, not did you ever get feedback, that's awful. Did, were Bradford City um, grateful for the way, um, you know, you told the words, told the pictures um, and what happened as well? Yes, I would like to think so. They've involved me in many things since then. I've even been at the memorial service and read out the names of those who perished on that day. Uh, I've always been made welcome. I went to the first... and I wasn't sure how I would feel when I went back to Valley Parade for the first time after that day in 1985. Uh, but they had a match between an England 11th, supposedly chosen by Bobby Robson, which my great friend again, Kevin Keegan, came and played. Uh, I went to that and I felt okay. And obviously I've been hundreds of times since then. So yeah, I'm, there's an affinity between myself and Bradford City, I like to think, which uh, will last forever, even though I'm still a Bradford Park Avenue supporter. <laughs> we'll keep that quiet. We'll edit that bit out, don't worry. <laughs> um, okay, so your, your final song choice then, um, and it is, it's a lovely song. It's um, 
it, it's the 2010 South Africa World Cup song um, by, by Shakira. Why, why, why this one in particular? In your life, you don't get too many opportunities to go to World Cup finals. Now, I've been to 10 finals, uh, not the final. I've been to, I think it's six actual final matches. Um, and the first of those was in Yokohama in 2002, where I actually commentated as well. I've been to finals before that, but not been the commentator. You know, people like Brian Moore had commentated uh, for ITV on, on finals before that. In 2002, I went to Yokohama to see to commentate on, on that final. In 2006, I did the final when Zidane got sent off. But 2010 was the last one on which I personally commentated for FIFA. Uh, and the, the song by Shakira uh, somehow was stuck in my head. I mean, there was such a lot of talk about that World Cup in South Africa. Um, and I like to think I had a good game. Uh, Iniesta scored the only goal. And my words simply were, surely now, because there have been so many missed opportunities. And that, funny enough, that phrase has been adopted in, in South Africa um, to reflect that World Cup, surely now. Uh, two words, it's incredible, isn't it? And yet that Shakira song is still played at many, many FIFA tournaments. I'm still working for FIFA and I do the under 17 and 20 World Cups and the World Cup as well. And that is always the one that they blast out on the big screens before matches. So it's obviously uh, stood the test of time, I suppose you would say. It's, it's just a great song. And it epitomises the World Cup for me and my last final. Fantastic, fantastic choice. The song, and I can see why, like you say, takes you back to your happiest memory. This is Shakira uh, and the theme to the 2010 South Africa World Cup. I think music has a uh, an incredible ability, like you just said, to, to sort of transport people to an instant place and time. You only need to hear the first couple of bars or the opening line and you're instantly back to a memory or to a place and, you know, music almost like no other. And it's, it's also, and, and I think, commentary lines do exactly the same thing and it's something that i referred to i've referred to before in podcasts and articles that you know and you talk about the use of words and you know talk about richie benno and if you can't add to it but but commentary lines for me are like song lyrics that and you only need to hear a certain commentary line and i'm i'm back you know i'm back at a certain moment certain game a certain age you know, and, and it's it's quite a big responsibility that football, well, all sports commentators have, not just football commentators. And I would guarantee that all those great lines were totally spontaneous. You know, the Barry Davis one, just look at his face <laughs> after somebody scored. Uh, the, the, my, my own favourite from myself was a Michael Laudrup goal in Mexico in 1986 when he scored for Denmark against Uruguay. A fantastic dribble and finish. And I just said, the boy's a genius. And that's all that needed to be said. And they produced T-shirts with the boys of genius on in Denmark as a result of that. Uh, and I, I, yeah, Eddie Waring 
uh, years ago in a rugby league cup final when the, a, a chap called Don Fox missed a kick from just in front of the post to win the match and he didn't kick it and he said oh the poor lad now those are spontaneous reactions of a commentator and that's why we're there we're there for those moments and we're there to sort of sum up the the misery if you like as well as the joy because not all sport is full of joy is it you know there are some heartbreaking moments for people absolutely uh, and i think that is our responsibility really is to reflect the mood of the moment what a great phrase. That, that could be another T-shirt there. Reflect the mood of the moment. Um, okay, so we're, we're heading into... Uh, I, I can't believe we've not got two halves. We're heading into injury time. Uh, we're nearly at 45 minutes. So these are your quick-fire questions. You, d you don't need to overthink. Just, just whatever comes out um, is, is fine. So, first question. What do you love most about football? Exhilaration. It just the, the the yeah the exhilarating moment when somebody scores a goal. Who were you in the playground? Stanley Matthews. Um, which uh, we kind of come. To, I know this, but which team do you support? Bradford Park Avenue. <laughs> what do you miss most about football from your childhood? Uh, scoring goals. Um, okay, these these now get quicker. Who's the greatest player? John Charles. The greatest game? Brazil versus Italy, 82. The, the greatest team? Brazil. The greatest goal? First goal I ever saw for Bradford Park Avenue, Jim Mills. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a, that's a joke. <laughs> the, the, the greatest goal, you'll be astonished. Uh, I'll try and make it very, very quick. He's a Portuguese player against Cameroon and he scored from the halfway line hooking the ball over his head spotting the goalkeeper off the line wow the greatest manager um, Don Revy okay and then finally what would you change about the modern game stupid rule where the ball has to be stationary at a free kick they don't allow it to even roll half an inch and it slows the game down what well, a great answer most people just go with money um, okay, so your, your final question, let me just draw it out because I don't know what we're going to get. So this is your final score draw question. Okay, if you could travel back to any moment in history, in the, in the history of humankind, what moment would you go to? Mm. I've got to be quick, have I? Uh, no, you're okay. You can take time with this one. Right, 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 right. Just let me think. Uh... Hmm. I'm trying not, not to. Do, sorry, I'm. Uh, it's got to no, be it's okay. To, no, no, do you fine. want it to be? Do you want it to be football related? No, it can be. No, if it's not football related, all the better. Yeah, the day the 1945 war ended. The day 1939, 1945, the day peace was declared. What a great answer! Is that? Is that again? I suppose that comes to the euphoria. The yeah, well, I, was born, I was born in 1942, so I was, I was around, I was three, so, but I can't remember that proclamation. I can remember certain things happening during the war, I can remember something, a zeppelin coming over, I can remember sirens going, and things like that, but I can't remember the declaration of the ending of the war. That is a fantastic answer. What a great answer. Okay. Um, 
John, it, like I say, I, I can't believe I can call you John. I feel like it should be Mr. Helm. No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> you're my um, mate. You're my mate now. I've said oh. that little boy in Scarborough was your last commentary. Oh, oh, I know. Don't worry. I'll be highlighting that, highlighting that to all my friends tomorrow. Don't, <laughs> don't worry about that. When, it, when I do a little trailer clip, that's that's the sentence that's going. In fact, that might even be my t-shirt. Um, <laughs> it's like I say, you are just you're just incredible to talk to. I am so so grateful um, for you coming on on the show. I, I'm just really annoyed with myself that I set it at 45 minutes. Um, and that I didn't set the show to be longer, um, but I was hoping that I could, um, that people would be more encouraged to come on if I wasn't taking up too much of their time. No um, problem. It has been far and above beyond anything I could I could ever have wished for. Um, like I say, if anybody, well, people people know exactly where to find you. You're all over YouTube for a start. Um, <laughs> yeah. But. But also, like I say, if people want to know a little bit more about you, um, you have kindly, along with everybody else so far in the series, has put together a 12-song playlist, the equivalent of an album, um, that hopefully will allow them to get to know you a little bit better um, through your music choices. Um, like I say, John, it, it has just been an absolute pleasure. I am so, so grateful for you coming on the show. All right. No, no problems. Yeah, well, the Beatles were there because I interviewed them. You know, people like that. There was a reason behind all of those choices, probably. But uh, anyway, no, that was good. Uh, so long as you're happy with it, Stuart, I'm, I'm happy, happy to cooperate anytime. Oh, don't, don't say that. You, you could be on every week. You could be a, a <laughs> no, culprit. They wouldn't want me every week. I, 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 could, I could be your Dennis Law. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, all that's left for me to say um, is thank you for listening. I can't always promise a guest. That's um, no, all right. I'm sorry I couldn't work out Google Chrome. But <laughs> my computers and things are definitely not my scene. But Zoom, I'm all right on. Ah, oh, that's okay. We got we got there eventually, didn't we? All right. Um, All right, and do it. Yeah, thank you everyone for listening and please join us again next time. Thank you for listening to What's the Score with the Back Pages. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at the Back Pages 4 and on Instagram at the.backpages. But most importantly, please join us again next time on What's the Score for more football, more books, more music.